Amen. Thank you, Brother Frank. Oh, it's good to be in church tonight, isn't it? Amen. What a beautiful day God has given us today. I want to stop and just tell the church thank you. Uh, you've been so, so kind and, and generous towards us this month and so many kind words and gifts and things. And um, just thank you for, for all the love and, and support that you've shown. And uh, I know Brother Frank announced several weeks ago that the church was uh, giving us a grill for pastor appreciation. Well, the Lord gave us some sunshine today. So I grilled on that grill for the first time today. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful blessing. We had some chicken and we had some dogs and we had some brats, and, and uh, it was just a blessing. And so, church, thank you, thank you, thank you. We, we just love uh, this church, this church family, and I'm so honored to be able to, to serve the Lord with you guys. So I wanted to let you know that. Um, but we're in Joshua chapter 7 tonight, and we're going to look really at the entirety of this chapter uh, throughout the course of the sermon, and the sermon entitled Poisonous Presumptions. Well, what's a presumption? A presumption is an idea that is assumed to be true whether or not they really are. And presumptions can be dangerous when that which is assumed to be true becomes the foundation or the motivation for other actions. The story is told during the Battle of the Wilderness and the Civil War that Union General John Sedgwick was inspecting his troops. At one point, he came to a low wall over which he gazed in the direction of the enemy. His officers suggested that perhaps it was unwise for him to be so exposed and that he ought to duck while passing through that opening. Nonsense, snapped the general. They couldn't hit an elephant from this. And that was the last thing he said. You see, his presumption proved disastrous. J. Vernon McGee, the commentator, suggested that perhaps presumption is as dangerous as unbelief. And scripture is replete with examples of things that people presumed to be true that were not, that led to dangerous consequences in the end. Think of the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea as the spies were sent out to spy the land. Well, they looked and they saw, and what did they come back presuming? We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And we be not able. And based on that presumption, they made some disastrous decisions that led them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. I think of David as he brought the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines. And what did he do? He brought it back on a new cart. And I'm sure that in David's mind, it was a fine way to do it. But David, in his presumption, did not obey God. And when the cart began to waffle and rock and tip, what did Uzzah do? He put forth his hand, and he was struck dead. I think of Peter, good old Peter. Jesus had told the disciples that he would be crucified. Do you remember what Peter did? He began to rebuke the Lord and say, Oh, Lord, be it far from you. Those things will never happen to you. Peter, in his presumption, got what as a response? Get thee behind me, Satan. You see, Scripture in life is replete with examples of people who acted on things that they presumed 
to be true, and they were left with disastrous consequences. And presumptions can be disastrous, but the problem is presumptions can also be subtle. Because often we don't know that we are operating on presumption until we are dealing with the consequences. And so tonight, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 7 here. uh, The sin of Achan, the children of Israel, and the battle at Ai. And look tonight together at a couple of poisonous presumptions that we need to take care to avoid. Joshua 7, we're going to start by reading the first five verses. Would you join me there? The Bible says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said unto him, eh, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and eh, make not all the people go labor hither, for they are but a few. So there went up thither of the people about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote them, about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Sherebim, smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water." As we read the defeat there at the beginning of Joshua chapter 7, it's important for us to remember that this happened right on the heels of Israel experiencing an incredible victory. If you go back to Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, look how this chapter ends. And they burnt the city with fire, and all that was therein, only the silver and gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, put they in the treasury of the house of the Lord. And the Lord saved Rahab the harlot alive in her father's house, and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day, because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua adjourned them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that rises up to build this city, Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof, and his firstborn and his youngest son, he shall set the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. You know the story of Jericho. They had the mighty walls, and they had all the confidence in the world. And yet, what did God do to their mighty walls? What did God do to the mighty walls of Jericho? Tore them down. They came tumbling down. Israel was faced with, humanly speaking, insurmountable odds. And God worked a miracle that shook, shook the land of Canaan. Anytime, man, you're the underdog and you come up with a victory, gets you feeling pretty good about the next one, doesn't it? But what do we see? We see they went from an incredible victory in chapter 6, one that nobody believed was humanly possible. As they assessed Ai in chapter 7, do you remember what their assessment was? Eh, It's not that big of a city. It's not that big of a deal. 
We don't really need to send everybody. Oh, just send a few. We'll take care of it. No problem. Did you catch the presumption here? The presumption here that past blessings guarantee present blessings. They presumed that just because God had torn down the walls of Jericho that God would surely wipe away this measly people and that the victory we experienced yesterday would automatically translate into present promised victory today. And yet that presumption cost them dearly. You know why? Because presuming that just because God is blessed in the past means that no doubt God will have to bless in the present, it fails to rely on God for wisdom or direction. Did you notice that Joshua and the children of Israel, they counseled together, but they never sought the Lord. They never stopped to pray. They never asked for wisdom. They never asked for power. They never asked for a battle plan. They never asked for any of it. Such a presumption fails to rely on God for wisdom and direction. Such a presumption fails to realize that the reason they were blessed in chapter 6 was because of their radical obedience to God's word. You remember God's battle plan? Look back at chapter 6 and verse 11. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city going about it once. In other words, God told them to do what? They were going to do what? March around the city. And they did that on one day. And then what does it say? Verse 11. And they came to the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose up early in the morning. And the priests took up the ark of the covenant. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord of the ark. The ark of the Lord went continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men... And the armed men went before them, but the reward came after the ark of the Lord for the priests going on and blowing of the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned into the camp. And so did six days. And so for six days, what did they do? They marched around the city once. And then, verse 15, it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner, this time seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass that at the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. Isn't that a weird battle plan? And yet they did it. And crazy thing happened. When they gave radical obedience to God, they found radical blessing from God. I mean, it really is that simple. But such a presumption fails to realize that the reason the walls came tumbling down in six was because they had done what God had said. I'm going to tell you, church. The basis for our blessing is still the Word of God. James 1 and verse 25, one that we ought to memorize, mark, get it down. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. In other words, if we want radical blessing, it's going to come from radical obedience. And we fall 
into disastrous presumption when we presume that the past blessings we have experienced somehow guarantee present or promised blessings to come. How do we address this presumption? Well, church, we have to remember the reality that we face. The reality that we face is I need God. You need God. You need his wisdom. You need his power. You need his word for every decision you make. It amazes me how often, though, we even make big decisions without seeking God. You know, we'll we'll make decisions about jobs and never once stop to ask God what we should do. We'll make decisions about purchases, spend hundreds and thousands of dollars, sometimes borrow hundreds and thousands of dollars, and never once stop to ask God what we should do. I think about how we disciple and train and educate our kids. We make so many big decisions, and quite frankly, many times we don't even bother seeking the Lord. But I'm not even talking about the big decisions. I'm talking about the little decisions too. Because the reality is the little decisions aren't really as little as you and I make them out to be. I mean, the children of Israel thought this was a little thing. Oh, they're a little people. This is no big deal. We can handle this on our own. No, they couldn't. And no, we can't. Because even the little decisions, church, aren't as little as you and I make them out to be. Watch out. The presumption is prevalent that just because God has blessed in the past, I'm going to tell you, it does not guarantee his blessing in the present. I need God every day in every way. You know, we give this verse to our teenagers a lot, but it's a great one for mamas and daddies and grandpas and grandpas too. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding unless it's really not that big of a decision, right? Is that what the Bible says? Unless you've got a really airtight plan of your own. Is that what the Bible says? No, it says and lean not unto thine own understanding because in all thy ways acknowledge him Not what would make me the most money, not what would make me the most comfortable, not what makes the most sense logically, not not what, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Poisonous presumptions. We see the first one that Joshua and the children of Israel fell prey to was simply this, presuming that past blessing guarantees present blessing. It doesn't. I need God every day in every way. But I want you to note here, this is not where the presumptions stopped. Look how, so they went against Ai and they lost. They turned tail and ran. 36 men died. The hearts of the people melted and became as water. What was Joshua's response? Look with me at verse number 6. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? 
Would to God we, we have been content to dwell on the other side of Jordan. Oh Lord, oh, what shall I say when Israel turns their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ around us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will we do to make thy great name? Oh, poor Joshua, right? Joshua's reaction is interesting here. He basically says, God, why'd you do this to me? God, why'd you let this happen to me? God, this is your fault. You see the presumption? The presumption here is that when things go wrong, that the problem is with God and not with man. But before we're too hard on Joshua... How often do we fall into the same trap? How often do things go wrong in our life and we immediately ask, God, how could you let this happen to me? God, how could you, how could you do this to me? We've all asked it, haven't we? We've all thought it. We've all been there. You know, I find it interesting that we're very quick to pin on God the blame that doesn't belong to him. Consider with me the effects of our own choices. We get a bad diagnosis from the doctor and we thank Lord. How could you let this happen to me? And I wonder sometimes if the Lord up in heaven said, well, I would have preferred you not eat so many Krispy Kreme donuts. And maybe have taken a walk every now and then. Yeah. We say, Lord, how do we end up in such financial hardship? And the Lord says, have you seen your Amazon account? Have you seen the credit card statement from Walmart? Lord says, I don't think you've been out of Walmart and not spent $150 in the last five years. Whether it's the effects of our own choices or the effects of humanity's sin, hear me, the struggles and the hardships and the, the things that we experience in this life, they are effects of sin. And sin is not of God. <laughs> James is very clear that, that what? That as we, as we consider the Lord, that he, he, he doesn't... Look at James 1 verse 13. We'll get that one up there, then we'll go to 1 John. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, evil neither tempteth he any man. God has no part in sin. 1 John 1 in verse number 5, John puts it this way. Uh, 1 John, uh, David, if you would, chapter 1 in verse number 5. Talks about how God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So you see, when we struggle with the effects of sin, that's not on God. That's on us. And how quick we are to pin the blame on God when it doesn't belong to him. You know, Joshua here whines for three or four verses, Lord, how could you let this happen? Did you bring us over here just to kill us? Oh, that we had been content just to stay outside of the promised land. Lord, what am I supposed to do when Israel turns their backs and all these people want to destroy us? Oh, Lord, why would you let this happen? <laughs> Look at what the Lord says, verses 10 through 12. And the Lord said unto Joshua, get thee up. Wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Israel hath sinned. 
And they have also transgressed my covenant which I have commanded them. For they have taken of the accursed thing and have also stolen and dissembled also. And they have put it among their own stuff. Therefore, because Israel sinned, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore except ye destroy the accursed from among you. Boy, that puts it in perspective. Church, we got to be careful because this presumption is so dangerous. The church today, there's a strong influence in this health, wealth, prosperity, that if everything is not beautiful at all times, that somehow God is doing us wrong. This, this notion that if God isn't actively stacking the deck in our favor, then somehow he is actively to blame for our poor hand. Sorry for the gambling reference in church. Probably should have picked a different illustration. And how often we just presume God should be on our side. And that if something is off, then well, he's just not holding up his part of the bargain. So what's the answer to this presumption? The presumption that the problem is with God and not with man. Well, church, I think it's the reality that I need to spend less time presuming him to be on my side and more time proving myself to be on his. You go back to Joshua chapter 5, where God was preparing the children of Israel to go into Jericho. And there is a very interesting interaction that happens in Joshua chapter 5 between Joshua and the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus that, that appears here as the captain of the Lord's host. Look at me at Joshua 5 and verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? Who are you for? You on my side or are you on their side? Look what the angel says. And he said, Nay. But as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face and did worship and saith unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord hosts said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Did you notice the transaction, uh, the, the, the conversation that transpired? Joshua said, Are you on my side or are you on their side? And the angel of the Lord said, eh, eh, Wrong question. Neither. He said, I'm on God's side. And church, we better make sure that we're not presuming that Jesus is just backing us no matter what we do. We better make sure that we're aligning ourselves on his side. You see, God is for me. Amen. I love that. He is for me. But that doesn't mean I get a blank check to do whatever I want, and he's just going to push it through. If I want to know blessing... If I want to know victory, if we want to know spiritual power, you know what we need to do? We need to make sure that we're on God's side, that we're doing it God's way. I'm glad God is for me, but I need to understand that God is on God's side. And I need to make sure I'm on God's side too. I love Joshua's reaction here. 
when Joshua understood what was going on, he switched from asking, are you for me or for them, to simply saying, Lord, what would you have me do? And then doing it. That's where victory comes from. Lord, what would you have me do? And then doing it. We see a couple of presumptions here that Joshua and the children of Israel made. First of all, that past blessing is a guarantee of present blessing and future blessing. What's the reality? The reality is I need God every day in every way. I need God, his wisdom, his power, his word. Why? Because biblical obedience is what makes me blessable. We see the second presumption Joshua made that when they ran into hard times that the problem was on God's side. God, you're holding out. God, you're not holding on to your, uh, filling your end of the bargain here. The presumption that the problem was with God and not man, but the reality is the problem was not with God. The problem was with man. Israel had sinned. And we need to spend less time presuming God to be on our side and more, more time proving myself to be on his. There's one last presumption that we need to take a look at. So the Lord said that he would not be with them anymore, verse 12, except ye destroy the accursed thing from among you. And so the Lord gave Joshua a plan that he would up, he would sanctify the people, and he would bring the people tribe by tribe, and the Lord would select a tribe, and he did. He would bring the people uh, family by family, and the Lord would continue by lot to select out families until the Lord showed who had done the sin and taken the accursed thing. And so we see in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 7 that process take place. Verse 18, and we see, and he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. By the way, be sure your sin will find you out. You may have fooled your spouse, and you may have fooled the preacher, and you may have fooled your kids, and you may have fooled your neighbor, but you didn't fool God. Be sure your sin will find you out. And we find here that the Lord calls Achan on his sin. So let's look how this scenario ends, beginning in verse number 19. And Joshua said unto Achan, remember he had taken the, the silver and the Babylonian garments and those things. And Joshua said unto Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him. And tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonianish, a Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold and uh, 50 shekels weight, I coveted them and I took them and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran into the tent, and behold, it was hid in his tent, and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent, and brought them into Joshua, and into all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. 
and they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burnt them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. We find here Achan's presumption. And Achan's presumption was simply this, that the pleasure of sin was worth the price. Achan's presumption was simply that the pleasure of sin was worth the price. Oh, Achan had his excuses. He said in verse 21, when I saw the spoils. In other words, there was, there was so much there. And I only took a little. I, I mean, I, I need this. He fought in the battle. I mean, maybe he felt he deserved this. Maybe he had fallen on hard times. And maybe he thought, I have to have this. But the thing about sin is this. It always presents itself as low risk and high reward. But in reality, sin is anything but. The old preacher said, and rightly so, sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Achan's sin cost him everything. But I think one of the saddest parts of this story is this. That Achan's sin didn't just cost him everything. It cost those around him too. Did you notice that it wasn't just Achan? No, when Israel had to rid herself of the accursed thing, they took Achan. They took the silver. They took the garment. They took the gold. They took his sons. They took his daughters. They took his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and even his tent. They took it all. And they stoned them with stones until they were dead. And then they burnt them with fire. And then they covered the remains in stones. Now, our modern sensibilities immediately object to what? That's not fair. By the way, there are a lot of details we just don't know. His wife and kids could have been in on it. We don't know. But regardless of what the details were, we don't know. Here's what I need to point out tonight. When our objection is, well, that's not fair, you know what that tells us? That tells us we really don't understand sin. Because sin is not some cute, mildly dangerous pet that we get to play around with every now and then, and hopefully it doesn't bother us too bad. No, the Bible describes sin as a viper. The Bible describes sin as vomit, as infection, as gangrene, as rot. 
The Bible describes sin as cosmic treason. It is spitting in the face of Almighty God. Sin destroys those who commit it. And sadly, sin destroys those who are around it. James 1 in verse 15 puts it this way. Lust, when it's conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. I don't think it's fair, preacher, for the innocent to suffer for someone else's sin. Look at the world. Many a drunk driver has walked away from an accident when an innocent has been laid in the grave. Many an innocent spouse's world has been destroyed by pornography, by adultery, by lying and cheating. Many an innocent child, his life has been wrecked and ruined because of the sin of a parent. You see, when we object, that's not fair. The problem is we just don't understand sin. We don't understand how dangerous it is. We don't understand how destructive it is. We don't understand that it is never, never, never worth it. But so many, even today, live with the presumption that the pleasure of sin is worth the price. She'll never find out. They'll never know. This is just something that I do for me. It's not hurting anybody else. No, 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 no. Because sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. And the reality is, church, that the pleasure that is found in sin, and by the way, it's only ever found in sin for a season, The pleasure that is found in sin for a season is never worth the price you have to pay for it. The reality is that the devil seeks to steal, kill, and destroy you and everything God has for you. The reality is sin offers you nothing but pain. And there really is no such thing as a little sin in the eyes of God. What's the answer? The answer for this presumption that the pleasure of sin is worth the price is remembering this, that God's will, God's word, and God's ways are always, only good. You can look at James 1. You can look at Romans 12. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Psalm 84, 11, and 12. How the Lord God is a sun and shield. How the Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. It's been a little bit more serious message tonight, but rightfully so. Because presumptions are everywhere. And church, we need to make sure that false presumptions aren't poisoning our spiritual life. So let's learn from Joshua, Israel, and Achan tonight. Remember, first of all, that past blessing doesn't guarantee present blessing. Remember, second of all, that the problem, hey, it's not with God. It's with us. 
And remember finally tonight, the pleasure of sin, it is never worth the price. I'd like to note this in closing. Please give me your attention for one more moment. Because certainly this is true. That there is no presumption that is worse than thinking that you are on your way to heaven and living as a child of hell. If you're here tonight and you don't know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that your home is heaven because of what this book says, get it settled tonight. Don't operate on presumption. Don't operate on on any of that. Because grandma told me or this preacher told me. No, no, no. It needs to be because of what this book says. It's all around us, church. May we not let poisonous presumptions ruin our spiritual lives.